And uh, as you might have gathered, I haven't spent the last three weeks praying over what I was going to speak on tonight, uh, because Pastor it was supposed to be here and wants to be here, and I thought about grabbing his notes, but uh, we went to a pastor's fellowship yesterday, so he was going to type his notes or finish printing up his notes this afternoon. I'm sure his message is done, but the, the printing is another part, so I couldn't even steal his notes, so you're stuck with me. And I thought what we might do is come back and do a, a sequel uh, to where we were Sunday evening. And if you were here Sunday night, you may or may not remember that we talked about Hannah and her prayer for a son in the first chapter. And I said to you that Hannah's great faith was a result of her understanding of who God was. And I referenced chapter 2, and I referenced this particular song of praise, but I want us to come back tonight and look at it a little more deeply, and for two reasons. One, because it's always good for us to, to know who the Lord is, and it's always good for us to see what Scripture says about the, the person and character and nature of our God. But I want us to think about it tonight maybe from a little different perspective. We know that the more that we know God and the more that we understand him and the more that we see his greatness and his might, we know that we can trust him in a greater way. Or I shouldn't say that we can, but we do, right? We begin to see who he is and we respond that way. But having a better understanding of who God is not only affects the way that we pray and the way that we relate to him, but it affects the way that we relate to people who are around us. Um, every few years, Brother Skip Tilton comes here and he puts his slides up and he talks to us about creationism and the importance of that and he talks about apologetics and defending our faith. And somewhere along the way, Brother Skip is always going to put up a slide that shows a picture of the world and a pair of glasses and he's going to remind us about our biblical worldview, right? That perspective that we're to have as we look at the world. I think you understand and I'm just going to repeat it at the outset to make sure we're all on the same page. What you do or do not believe about God is the first step to your worldview. So when we look out at society and we say, how in the world did they come to that conclusion? How have we gotten to this place? How are we in this mess as a society? It's because their worldview is wrong, because their view of God is wrong. The fool hath said in his heart, what? There is no God. The fool begins there. There is no God. If there is no God, then there is no creation, there is no judge, there is no accountability, there is no moral standard, there is no right, there is no wrong. I can do whatever I please, right? That's what the fool says. On the other hand, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we take these two extremes and we understand that the, the, the most basic difference between the wise person and the foolish person is the wise person understands not only that there is a God, but he fears him because he knows that this God is to be answered to, this God is to be reckoned with, right? This God is going to demand consequences. The fool, on the other hand, there is no God. And so I'm allowed to live my life any way that I please. So let's dive in with that understanding here to Hannah's song. There's so much to say about it. I'm going to read the 10 verses that comprise the song. And, and you will see as I read it, we could dive in almost anywhere and spend a good portion of the evening just looking at that particular verse or that particular concept. The Bible says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Here's a quick parenthesis. In chapter 1, we saw Hannah's first prayer, right? We didn't hear it. Why? Because she couldn't even voice it. 
Remember Hannah was praying and, and the scripture says that the priest saw her mouth moving and she couldn't even get the words out. And now she says, my mouth is enlarged. Now she comes to a place where she's going to praise the Lord. And now she said, I don't have any trouble finding the words. I'm going to speak of who he is. There is none holy, verse number two, as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly, exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I told you the other night that we could go through and we could find those theological terms, those characteristics of God that we would study in, in looking at the theology of God. I'll just mention them here to you again with verses. Verse number three, we see the omniscience of God, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him are actions weighed. In verse number eight, we see his omnipresence. Um, <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. In verses number 5, 6, and 7, we see his omnipotence. Uh, he raises up and he puts down. Uh, he kills and he makes alive. He makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He does as he pleases. Um, he is immutable. That means he doesn't change. Verse number 2, there is none holy, there is none beside thee, neither is there any, God like, uh, any rock like our God. He is eternal and self-existent in that same verse. His holiness is spoken of in that same verse. The sense of justice that we read about in verses 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. All of those are there, but I want us to focus in tonight on just a few of them. And I want us to see how those attributes and our understanding of those attributes help us to form the way that we look at the world around us. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we just get angry. And there's a place for righteous indignation. But we need to make sure that our anger is well-placed, right? Um, Moses had temper problems. Have you ever noticed that? But if you study the life of Moses, Moses never got angry when they talked badly about him. Never. Now, he got angry when they went after his countrymen. And he got angry when the name of God was brought low. And so he got angry for others, but he still had that temper. Uh, David was the man after God's own heart. David in the Psalms prayed over and over again <clears throat> regarding his own enemies <clears throat> and those that were an obstacle to him. He prayed for grace in those circumstances. How many times did he say of Saul, who was obviously his enemy, I won't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. But he prayed down fire and brimstone on the enemies of God and on the enemies of God's people. Why? Because he had an understanding of who God was and who he wasn't. 
And so we need to keep that perspective as we move forward. This passage talks about God in his greatness, God in his strength. Uh, we saw even in the early verses, he's referred to as the rock. He is the horn, which is another word for strength. Um, uh, let's just step into verse number two and look, first of all, here at God's holiness. There is none holy as the Lord. Let's pause right there. If I had a blackboard, I would ask you a question, but I don't, so I can't, all right? But when we think of holiness, we normally probably think of purity, righteousness. We think of the fact that he's good and everything else is bad. And that's true. Holiness speaks a great deal of God's righteousness. But the literal meaning of the word holy comes to us from the idea of being torn or being separated or being distinct. There is none holy like the Lord. Keep that mind idea of distinction in your mind and read the rest of the verse. For there is none beside thee. You have no equal. There's no one else in this universe. There's no one else in creation that stands on the same tier, on the same platform as God. Read on. Neither is there any rock like our God. Our God is different than everything else. Right? Make your head go like this. It's not a trick question. He is the creator. Everything else has been created, right? So in that sense, he is the holy one. He is distinct. He is transcendent. He is above all things. Um, sometimes we hear these people that want to talk about the Lord, and they do it in the most casual of terms, the sort of the T-shirt Christians, you know, me and Jesus and coffee, and, and that's all I really need is me and Jesus and coffee. Well, I read scripture and the Bible tells me over and over again that even though he is my loving heavenly father, he still sits high and majestic on his throne. There is none like him. Um, this focus is on the separateness of God and the fact that he is different than all of us. Notice in verse 2 again, there is none holy as the Lord. There is none beside thee. Uh, these are double negatives. These are negatives that say no in no way and not in any form or in any fashion. Uh, he is so distinct from us. Um, let's turn over to the 113th Psalm. Psalm 113, we'll see this same idea. Psalm 113, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high? Isaiah chapter 6, you remember it. You've probably got the verses memorized. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord where? High and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 tells us again that he is the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. Our God is distinct from all else. Um, knowing that, as a believer then, I cannot allow in any way, shape, or form what the world refers to as pluralism. Our God is different. He's distinct. Therefore, he is the basis for everything that I believe he is the basis then for everything that I should do. He is the basis for the way that I should make every decision in my life. I cannot come to the conclusion where I say all gods, little g, are equal, that all roads are valid, and that all choices are the same. They're simply not. Now, we are Baptists. 
Did you notice the sign when you came in? We are Baptists. Uh, traditionally, historically, Baptists have believed in individual soul liberty. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying you have the right to believe any way that you choose to believe. Uh, Baptists, unlike other groups, and I'm not going to mention them, you'll know who they are soon enough, have never run a country to the point of saying you will believe like this or like us or off with your head or off to jail or off to the hangman's noose, right? Um, it was in this country, Roger Williams, you may remember, is the, is the most notorious Baptist preacher who came and settled the colony of Rhode Island, and there the Baptists found their home. Uh, Baptists were not welcomed by anybody else. Uh, the, pilgrims, the, the pilgrims were not happy, the Puritans were not happy with the Baptists. Uh, the Church of England certainly was not happy with the Baptists. And so as each colony was formulated, and you remember your American history, right? Almost every colony had its own particular church. William Penn, Pennsylvania, was a Quaker colony. Uh, Virginia was a colony of the Puritans. And so as Baptists came, they didn't fit in with any of those. And so the first Baptist colony, Rhode Island, which really wasn't even a Baptist colony, it was just a place that the Baptists could settle and be safe, that also became the home of some other groups who couldn't find any sort of welcome anywhere else either. The first Jewish synagogue in the United States early, early on in our history was in Rhode Island. Why? Because Baptists believe you have the right to believe as you believe. Now, we will fight for your right to believe as you believe, right? However, that does not mean that what you believe is as valid as what we believe. You can choose whatever you want to choose, but you can't choose the consequences of your choice, right? So we understand how that works. Um, we live in a day when we're told just live and let live. Believe what you want to believe. We'll believe what we want to believe. And in the end, we'll all get to the same place. There is none like the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so the idea of, well, we have our God, they have their God, we have our beliefs, they have their beliefs, it'll all be okay in the end. No, there's one God who is distinct and separate, Then he is a jealous God. And if we don't worship him, if we don't serve him, if we don't follow him, uh, then we're like on a road that's going to bring us to some problem in the long run. So that's God's holiness, which does not allow for pluralism. Uh, let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and look at verse 3. Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Um, he is a God of knowledge. He is a God of knowing. Now, God knows everything, right? We agree? God is omniscient. That's the big fancy word. Um, but notice, this verse isn't speaking about the fact that God is just smarter than the rest of us. Look at the last phrase. The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So what kind of knowledge specifically is Hannah praying about here? It's the reality that our God knows everything about our actions. He knows us. And by that same knowledge, he will weigh our actions. Now, that's a principle that's taught over and over in Scripture. Keep a marker here in 1 Samuel 2. Let's go to the book of Proverbs and get some practical wisdom. Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 2. <clears throat> All the ways of a man 
are clean in his own eyes, Proverbs 16.2, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. Um, let's go back to the olden days. You ready? This is before my time. Actually, not entirely before my time. You've seen those scales, the scales of justice, right? We'll just think of those. Um, I do remember as a kid, our butcher had something pretty similar to that, now that I think of it, and he had the little weights that he would put up there, and he would even the thing out, so maybe I am a 1,000 years old. I don't know. Um, but if, if, you, if you took a precious stone and you wanted to get money out of it, the first thing they were going to do is figure out, well, what does it weigh, right? What's it worth? If you were going to buy meat from that butcher, he's going to put it out, what does it weigh? They still do that at Publix. They just have a fancier machine now, right? It all works the same way. The Lord weighs the spirits. The Lord is going to weigh the motivation of that action. Now, the man thinks what? That all of his ways, verse number two, are clean. Everything's good. Everything's fine. It's all under control. But the God of knowledge says, let me put it on my scale. Let me take a look at it under my terms. Um, have you ever stood on a scale that was overly friendly to you? <laughs> no. Have you ever stood on a scale that was horribly difficult and, and, and burdensome to you? Yeah, maybe. Um, you, some of you weigh yourself so regularly, you know. You could step on a scale and go, oh, no, that thing's wrong. That's off by two and a half pounds. It's got to be. It has to be. It's, it's impossible. Um, the Lord's scale is never wrong. It's always right. He doesn't have to go anywhere. I, I, you know, you pump gas and you see that little sticker that says that somebody from the state has come along and they have put a gallon of gas into their little container and they verify that you're really getting a gallon of gas. Um, those scales that I mentioned in the butcher shop, those two have to be regulated by the state, right, to make sure that somebody's not cheating somewhere. God's scales don't need that. So his weight, his evaluation, his assessment of our actions are always right. We always think we're fine, right? Let's read another verse, Proverbs 24, 12. Proverbs 24, 12, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? Behold, we knew it not. Oh, we didn't really know that we were doing the wrong thing there. Have you ever tried to say that to a police officer when you're speeding? I, didn't, I, I wasn't aware that that was the speed limit as I came through here. Do you know what he's going to say? That's your problem, right? Because you're obligated to know it. And he's going to say, my radar doesn't lie. And so my radar plus your ignorance equals a fine of 150 or whatever the number is, right? Plus two points, plus your insurance, plus all of that stuff. God says ignorance is not an excuse. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 1 that God has used these visible things to remind us of he who is invisible. We have this code written in our hearts. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21, verse number 2, um, a verse that we heard a good bit of just a couple of weeks ago. Every, man, uh, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord, here we are again, pondereth the heart. So he weighs our actions Proverbs chapter 16 says, and here it says that he ponders, again, another word for the weighing of our hearts, our motives, our desires, and what it is that we're doing. So this understanding then that we have a God of justice who knows all things and who judges us according to his terms rather than our motives or our ignorance or our stupidity or whatever we want to say, this does not allow for us relativism. 
relativism is, is says, well, everybody is, ba- is, is judged based on what's going on around them. We live, they say, in the United States of America. Therefore, we live according to a certain set of rules and guidelines and policies that have been dictated to us by the society in which we live. We have all progressed to this point of believing these things. If I hear one more time that this person is on the wrong side of history, have you heard this? And we're hearing it now about the transgendered people, about the, you know, the, the s- sexual fluidity. Well, you're on the wrong side of history. One day history is going to look back and, and history will have progressed to the point that we're going to look at those of you who are not woke, those of you in the dark ages, those of you who are still clogged up in your brain, and you're going to realize you were wrong and you're going to have to get on the right side of history eventually. Let me tell you something. History may be wrong. History may be wrong for the next 200 years. God's word still hasn't changed. He will judge us based on his scales, not society scales. Um, this is why if you go to some countries as a man and dress like a woman, they will kill you, right? That's their society rule. If you dress like a woman in our country, we will put you on the cover of a magazine and celebrate you. But God's standard doesn't change in either place. Now, I'm not advocating killing anybody. I'm just saying we can't begin setting up rules based on what we think is comfortable and convenient. But yet we do. We've reached this point in our society. Why? Because we have set God aside. We don't need him anymore. We can make up our own minds and look at the mess that we're in. Verse number four, we'll move on. Again, 1 Samuel 2. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased so that the barren hath borne seven children, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. God does whatever he wants, right? Not only does he do whatever he wants, but he is doing whatever he wants. All of these verbs here are in a present tense. She's saying God is doing this, and God is doing that, and God is doing the other thing. So while I said God is holy, and he is separate, and he is transcendent, and he is lifted above all things, don't think that he has become detached from his creation. The Bible says he is completely involved and engaged in his creation. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Uh, A deist could best be explained as a watchmaker, or that God was a watchmaker, that God designed this intricately uh, sophisticated, complicated mechanism known as earth and humanity and mankind, and he wound it all up, and he let it go, and now the earth and mankind just sort of dangles from a chain out of the pocket of God, and he has no idea what's going on down there. It's not true. We know that over and over again. God is heavily invested in the affairs of men, right? If he were not, we've wasted our time tonight by coming here and praying to him. We know that God answers prayer. We know that he will respond to us. And so as a result of that, I have to set aside this idea that, oh yeah, there's probably a God out there somewhere, but he is so far away, he is so distant, he is so unconcerned. By the way, haven't you read he has other planets and other creatures and other places to deal with? He has no more time for us. He knows exactly what time it is here because his watch is still in his hand and he's still keeping track of where we are in this timetable of things. I've, I've had more people ask me in the last three weeks, how much longer can this go on? Speaking of society in general, 
because it's pretty bleak. Have you noticed? I, I, I don't even read much of the news, and I get the headlines, and I'm done. I just, the Lord knows I can't deal with it. So I try to just poke my, I'm not completely unaware, but I don't want to be too aware. You know what I mean? Because it's ugly out there, and it's getting uglier. How much worse will it get? I don't know. But the Lord knows. He's got his own timetable. And he will move at the moment that's right for him. I, I will tell you this. We're a little skewed, I think, as Americans. Because we have lived in a nation which has been godly for the better part of 200 years. Um, I'm not saying that we were independent fundamental Baptists for 200 years, but at least we had an ethic that said there is a God and we will answer to him, right? To see the Ten Commandments on a courtroom wall was not an unusual thing until this present generation. And so as a result, we've been a little spoiled. And we just kind of think, well, that's how mankind has been for all these years. No, mankind's been pretty polluted for a long time. And you remember studying your ancient history, what went on in the Greek Empire and what went on in the Roman Empire. And God... And his mercy and grace allowed all that to pass through. Now, was there judgment? Sure. But he said, I'm not done with mankind yet. God brought us to this day, and by his mercy and grace, we're still here, and we still have an opportunity to share the gospel with others. That's his mercy and grace. But at some point, the scripture says he'll be done. In times past, the book of Hebrews says he winked at sin. There it is. I'll just, okay. But it's coming. Um... My father was a strict man, but he was not quick to discipline. Um, sometimes my father would be building an account that I was not even aware of. <laughs> Stupid little things. That I, and he would say, hey, what did I say about what did I say? And then at some point, I've told you, I'm going to lower the boom. And the boom was heavily loaded by that time because all of these things had been accumulating. And then we would... Get the boom in the two weeks, and you know I'm not going to take you down that road again. It's too depressing. And sometimes I think our God is the same way. He just says, I'll wait, I'll wait. Maybe you'll get it straightened out. Maybe you'll get it right. Maybe you'll come to me on your own terms, right? Maybe, maybe this grace will, but eventually it's coming. And we can look forward to it in one sense as believers, knowing that he will set all of this right. That's good to know. Every time we've read some sordid story in the news, one of those things that just turns your stomach. God's going to set it right. And his justice will be perfect. Uh, finally, verses number 8 and 9, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among the princes and to make them inherit the throne of his glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. God is sovereign. God is the omnipotent creator. Uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Oh. Verse number 22. Paul is in Greece. He's gotten bored. He was waiting for his companions to join him there. So he's wandering through Athens and sort of taking it in, and he begins to debate with people in the marketplace and within public places. And so they finally said to him, you seem like somebody who's got something to say. So they brought him to this spot uh, where people would come to, dis to dispute and discuss things. Verse number 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. 
For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being." This is essentially what Hannah was praying all the way back in the Old Testament. And now Paul the Apostle is standing in front of these Greeks who knew nothing about the Old Testament. He didn't go back and tell them about Abraham. He didn't remind them about the the covenant that God had made with Moses. He, He didn't talk about David's eternal throne. He went back and said, let's go all the way back to the beginning, to this God that you're not even sure of. And let me tell you that by the words of your own poets, it's this God who created all of us and we are his offspring. You need to understand, he goes on to say, for as much then as this God created us and this God continues to exist around us, one of these days we will answer to that God. He has all of this in his hand. God is in control. If there's any phrase that we need to tattoo on our mirrors and and on the dashboards of our cars and, and on the front page of our newspaper, maybe the screen of our computer or phone, it ought to be that phrase, God is in control. There are moments that we're convinced he has no idea what's happening. Let me remind you to go back to see what Hannah said. He's holy. He is just. He is still engaged. And he's absolutely sovereign. Now the fact that he has chosen not to move in the way that I think he should move proves one thing. He's smarter than me. Uh, One of my favorite phrases is, there is one God. And the phrase goes like this, and you're not him. When I say it to myself, there is one God and I'm not him. And so I trust that he knows more than I do. That doesn't take a lot of faith, does it? I know he knows more than I do. And so there are times we read or we see or we hear or we experience and we simply say, Lord, you know what's best. I don't see it. I don't understand it. I'm not even sure I agree with you. But you know what's best. And so I will trust in your sovereignty. I will trust in your grace. I will trust in your goodness. You have a plan. And so Hannah prays this prayer as a result of what God did for her in chapter number one. But I want to say to you again, she was able to pray in chapter number one because of what she believed and what she reveals to us in chapter number two. This great, all-knowing, holy God who is still engaged in the affairs of men hears us, answers us, and responds to us. I hope we can pray to him tonight, tomorrow morning, throughout the week, with our mouths being enlarged. Lord, thank you for who you are. And thank you that even though this world is a mess, you have given us your word so that we can have a view and a perspective on this world that's consistent with you. And when people start telling us it doesn't make any difference, it's all the same. No, 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 one God, one plan. Well, you know, you only believe that because you grew up in a Christian home and you've come... mm, God's still weighing things according to his standard. And in the end, he'll sell all of this right. Aren't you glad to know that God's in control? And uh, we rest in him tonight. Father, we thank you so much.